Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is The Unknown God by Pastor Sean Wood. This morning I want to talk to you about the unknown God. Uh, We'll talk more about what Paul finds when he gets to Athens. Uh, When I say the name Richard Dawkins, does anybody here know who Richard Dawkins is? Yeah, Richard Dawkins is probably, or was, probably uh, this, uh, in recent times, most antagonistic atheists. And I say the word was because something dramatically changed in 2012. Uh, Richard Dawkins is what they call a naturalist. Uh, It's what Sir David Attenborough is. I don't know how Sir David Attenborough is able to um, create... Sorry? Yeah. Uh, I don't know how he's able to create the documentaries he does... Um, and still hold to a natural pathway for life. But natural selection basically tells you this, everything in the known universe and world came into being by random natural processes. They are filled with faith, brothers and sisters. (laughs) It takes more faith to believe that. But Richard Dawkins is a naturalist. Richard Dawkins believes that everything is the way it is today because of survival of the fittest. Um, Just as a digression and a side note, that's exactly what Adolf Hitler thought. That's exactly what the Nazi regime was all about. Not only is it survival of the fittest, we're going to make sure that we wipe out all the lesser gene pools and we're creating the best gene pool Available. We're going to talk a little bit more about that a little bit later on. But something happened in 2012. Richard Dawkins was being interviewed by the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time. And uh, he says, you know, Richard Dawkins, he was labelled as an atheist. And, and Dawkins says, you know what? He says, I'm not so much an atheist like everybody thinks I am. He says, I'm probably 6.9 out of 7% sure of my convictions. And the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time said, well, why don't you just call yourself an agnostic? And he said, I am an agnostic. And the word agnostic um, basically is, uh, somebody who is agnostic is in trying to insert grey into a black and white universe. Can I tell you, when God made the universe, he did not make any grey areas for us to kind of sit in. But an agnostic is one who believes that nothing is or can be known about the existence or the nature of God. But they know, according to the evidence that surrounds them, that God makes sense. Richard Dawkins says, you know what? I'm not so sure anymore that there's no God. He gave up on the whole aliens seeded the planet because he he just couldn't explain how human life came to be. He couldn't explain how human consciousness came to be. He couldn't explain how all of the design in the universe came to be. We're going to look at that a little bit later in a moment. But he says, you know what? He says, I believe there is a God, but we can't know who that God is. He can't be known and the nature of this God can't be known. And I want to tell you, Richard Dawkins is wrong. I want everybody in this room to know today, if you, if you get nothing else today, I want you to know two things. First, Richard Dawkins is absolutely wrong. The God that created the universe can be known. We can know him personally. In fact, it's one of the major evidences for the existence of God. And the second one is this. There is no neutral ground. You can't, you can't sit in neutral. I, uh, I've got two teenagers. One has accomplished her licence. The other one is trying to. And I've realised something. There's a difference between being in neutral and being in gear. And it's a big difference when these guys are driving. So uh, uh, let me tell you, you now the cars launch off at the lights and all these sorts of things. But uh, God has left every single person no neutral ground. 
But I'd also like to lay a challenge to everybody in this room today that neutral ground is not only held by those who are agnostic. And I wonder whether we in the church at times can be comfortable in a neutral kind of ground. Yes, we believe in God. Yes, Jesus is our saviour. But we sit in a kind of neutral, passive zone. God never designed that for anybody. And uh, I know that you guys are up to my trickery, but when I say who wants a church like they had in the first century, no one puts their hands up anymore because these guys... But when I read the book of Acts, I, I just can't read the book of Acts anymore and no longer be on my knees in repentance because there is a disconnect between where those guys were at and where I'm at. I don't know about you guys, but I know that they, they had a relationship with God that I long to understand and to grab hold of. And so I repent because there is a difference between where they were at and where I'm at. There's no neutral ground. It's time for the church of Jesus Christ not only to come out of neutral, but to get into fifth gear and get on the highway. So Paul, in his missionary travels, comes to a place called Athens. If you're meeting me in Acts chapter 17, we're going to begin at verse 16 and it says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, who's he waiting for? Silas and Timothy. Uh, They're they're held up in Thessalonica and Paul decides, I'm going to make my way to Athens. And if uh, Athens is so much like uh, the Western society today, Athens is so much like Brisbane. We're going to understand that uh, if you could, you could probably transpose both of them. But uh, it's kind of like to understand Athens, Athens is like the Oxford or the Cambridge of the first century. It was full of the most educated. Uh, in fact, Paul will preach the greatest sermon, I think, in the book of Acts. The greatest sermon, I think, in the book of Acts. Paul will preach amongst the aristocrats, the nobles of Athens, the most respected, the most revered, the the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers, which basically means we've got nothing better to do with our time than sit around and talk about stuff that doesn't make sense. Uh, uh, Lee Strobel was talking to Ravi Zacharias and Lee Strobel says to to Ravi Zacharias, he says, my son, uh, because of you, my son has undertaken a degree in philosophy. And Ravi Zacharias says, that's great, Lee, I'm glad to hear that. And Lee said, you don't seem to understand. He said, do you know what the difference between a philosophy degree and a large pizza is, Ravi? And Ravi says, no, I don't. He says, a large pizza can feed a family of four. He says, but a philosophy degree, he said, really isn't worth anything in the commercial world. But these guys sat around talking and thinking all the time. So he arrives at Athens. And as he's walking through Athens, something happens. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. I know what everybody's thinking. I know the minute we read the word idol, we think of some graven image that someone's got on their mantelpiece. We, maybe we think of a room tucked away somewhere. Someone's built an altar. That's what it used to look like. Idolatry has not stopped. It just looks different than what it did in the first century. Uh, the rumour amongst the Roman culture was this. It is easier to find a god in Athens than it is a man. And I want everybody here to know, I actually think it's easier to find a god in Brisbane than it is a man. Because everybody's worshipping something. Every single person on the planet was designed and created to worship. You will worship. And by God's gracious, gracious decree, we're able to choose what it is or who it is that we worship. And Paul's walking through the streets of Athens and he realises this place is full of idols. And the reference in the Greek literally means swamped with idols. 
And it provokes Paul. It should provoke us too. An idol, the word idol in the Greek means, it means a likeness or it means a phantom. There are a lot of people that are worshipping phantom gods. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about. Life is like a vanity. It's like a vapour. It's like a smoke. Why? Because it gives the appearance of being able to build your life on it, but you can't. Why? Because it's like a vapour and a smoke. It disappears. And the message of Ecclesiastes is this. Life is short and uncertain. Grab hold of the one who gives you all the certainty. And that comes from a guy who should know. Timothy Keller says, the best way to to understand what an idol is, is think of anything in your life or in your heart that if it was taken away from you today, you could not live without. And for many people outside this room, it looks like many different things. It may look like your career. It may look like money. It may look like possessions. It may look like relationships. I've, I've had people tell me, you know, I could never live without my spouse. I could never go on without my spouse. And Timothy Keller goes on to tell the story of a lady who was very, very successful in business. If I said her name, you would know who I'm talking about, I reckon. Very, very successful in the tech business. And she lost over 90% of her empire overnight in the GFC. Lost the whole lot. And Timothy Keller tells the story. He says, this lady comes up and says, I need to speak to you. And he says, he says, I don't know what I'm going to tell this lady. He says, I, 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 I'm going to have to get all pastoral here. He said, but she turned the tide and got pastoral with me. And she walked into that office and she said, I'm not sure whether you know or not, Timothy, but I lost 90% of my business overnight just recently. And he said, I am aware. And he said, I'm, she said, I'm sitting in this room to tell you that I need to sell my house. And she said, I need some time to move house. And I need to downgrade my life. And I need to reassess my household income. But I want you to know that I lost 90% of my business. And I now have 90% of my time free to devote to the church and the kingdom of God. Because she hadn't lost what was most important to her. And I often ask myself the question. I wonder if we ask it, 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 those in ministry. I know people who have, who, who have left the ministry or been out of the ministry and it destroys them because their whole identity is wrapped up in what they do instead of who Jesus is. Brisbane is a place full of idols. Let me tell you now, people are worshipping a lot of different things and the church can be full of idols too. Anything that takes the place of God in your heart is an idol. And it provoked Paul in his spirit. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews. He reasoned. That's far different than preaching. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say. They still say that? No, they don't. Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. It's foreign to their ears. Here's a place full of gods and we haven't heard of Jesus. You're about to. Because he was preaching Jesus Christ and the resurrection. The the message of the first church was this. Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus is our Saviour, Jesus is the Messiah, and He is raised from the dead. That was the message of the apostles. That was the message of the first church. No grey in that at all. 
No grey matter at all. We're not going to fudge it. We're not going to water it down. We're not going to try and package it nicely for you. Here it is. Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth and you don't have any neutral ground left anymore. See, Jesus removes all the neutral ground. And although when he was walking the earth, people were indifferent to him, some hated him, three responses to Christ we find in the Gospels. Every single person responded in one of these three ways. First one, they hated him and wanted to kill him. Number two, they ran from him in fright. Number three, they abandoned everything in their life and embraced him because they were smitten. I want to ask you in this room today, which one are you? Paul and the apostles didn't fudge the message of Jesus Christ. Here's Jesus and everything that he said, he backed it up. Why? Because there's an empty tomb. I'm going to talk about that in a moment as well. And they were preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead in Jerusalem where he had died 40 days earlier. And if they wanted to, they could just go and get the body. Why did they not? Because it wasn't there. And apparently 10 frightened, scared little disciples overcame a Roman guard, busted through a two and a half stone, rolled it up the hill before anybody knew what was going on and slicked out the back door with the body. That's the best they could come up with. They preached Jesus Christ and and him rising from the dead. What other message do we need? What other message do we need? We serve a supernatural God. I don't know too many other good men or prophets who have been raised from the dead. In fact, there's been none. There's one man, the God man, was raised from the dead. And when that tomb was empty, there was no neutral ground left for the disciples. There is no neutral ground left for us. And nobody outside of these doors has the pleasurable experience of saying, there must be a God somewhere and all roads lead to Rome. Everybody gets to God in their own sweet way. No, no, no. There's one way to God. And that is the person of Jesus Christ. And he can be known and the power that raised him from the dead can be known and alive in each one of us. What a message he left behind. Thank you, Jesus. Paul goes on, he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, Mars Hill, which is the aristocrats, saying, we know that this new teaching, we want to know what this new teaching is. You bring some strange things to our ears. Jesus is still strange to people's ears, which I find to be amazing. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the... Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Yeah, you know, nothing's changed in 2,000 years. Some people will jump on the next wagon that's passing by. Yeah, we've got people making covenants with the universe and signing themselves over and going in search for their true selves. It's right here. It's right here. You don't have to search any longer. Paul does something very, very, very smart. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he knew how to present the message of the gospel. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in any, every way you are actually very religious. You have to be. There's more gods than there are men here. You guys, you guys are very religious. You're very pious. You're worshipping. You already are fully aware that there is a spiritual realm. And he starts on that basis and he continues his message. You guys are all are very religious. He goes on <clears throat> speaking about the fact that everybody worships 
For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. Worship, it, worship is not, we don't need Chris Tomlin and Hillsong for worship. Worship is not, worship is, we, we sing and we worship, yes. But the fullness of the word consists of the posture and the direction of your life. And what Paul is saying is, as I walk around Athens, you guys are worshipping everything you can find. You guys, you guys are following it. It's, it's compelling your life. We find the truest meaning of the word worship in Genesis 22. My son's preaching on Genesis 22 tonight. But in Genesis 22, we find that worship looks like this. It looks like Abraham walking up the mountain with his son because God told him to. Don't forget, it's the son that God had promised him. And he walks up the mountain. What's, what's Abraham doing the whole time? There's nothing in my heart before you, God. I'll obey you above everything else. I, don't, I can't work out why I'm taking my son up this mountain. And Hebrews tells us, I have already reasoned within myself that if need be, you will raise Isaac from the dead. But I'm going up the mountain because you told me to. That's worship. Worship, singing is the fruit of our worship. Paul says, you guys are very religious. Your whole life is centred around the new idea and God and what you think God is. It's interesting what people will fashion God into. He goes on and says, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. And this, this is the neutral ground. This is the agnostic position where we have a God, but we can't know him. And this has deeper roots in history than just that. But uh, the roots for the unknown God comes from a, a time about 400 years before Christ. And there was a plague that strikes the city of Athens. Athens was much larger then, but a plague hits the city. And these guys, you can already see they're very superstitious. So they begin to look for answers. Why has this plague come upon us? What are we going to do about it? One guy stands up and says, I've got the answer. He says, grab a heap of sheep. He says, and let them loose in the city, and wherever they sit and nestle, the closest God, we will, we will sacrifice that sheep to that God that they've sat closest to. Problem was, they didn't sit near any of the gods. So where they did sit, they erected an altar to the unknown God. We don't know who you are. Do you know there's people in Brisbane today you walk down the streets right now and you pull up 10 people in the street and ask them, do you believe in God? I bet you nearly every single one of them will say, yeah, I believe in God. But when you get to the person of Jesus, that's where we get out of neutral, see? So no, 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 I don't accept Jesus. No, 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 you're not taking me out of neutral. But yeah, there must be a God and, and we all get to heaven in our own way and, and all of my ancestors are with God now, I wonder. Maybe they are, pray they are. And Paul says... You guys are worshipping what you don't know. And people in Brisbane right now are worshipping somebody they don't know. But Paul doesn't leave them there. I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, he says. This I proclaim to you. Very smart, Paul. Very learned man. Verse 24. The God who made the world. And everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. No boundary that man places will God exist inside of. He breaks out of our boundaries all the time. 
nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath and everything. What's the message for Brisbane today? You breathe oxygen because God lets you. Every person in this room is breathing oxygen that God is allowing you to breathe. How good is our God? He allows rain to come on the righteous and the unrighteous. Every morning when the sun comes up, God has done it again. What's he done? He's given every single person one more day, one more chance to repent. To this God, he starts with the existence of God. Every single person in this room sits amongst a jury. There is strong evidence for the existence of God. Ravi Zacharias, one of the greatest apologists of this last century, says that God has revealed enough of himself to make faith reasonable, but has disclosed or hidden enough of himself to make faith essential. And every single one of you this morning, I want to place you in the jury stand for just a brief moment and present you with just the briefest amount of evidence. I'm only going to touch on these very briefly as in proofs or evidence for the existence of God. I want to start where Paul started about this unknown God. First one is the universe began and we've covered these before and we're going to keep covering them because I believe it's important for us to lay the foundation. In 1929, Edward Hubble discovered something that frightened the pants off Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein's theories, he thought, were all resting on the fact that the universe was static and always existed. Edward Hubble invented a telescope in 1929 and he realised very soon that the universe is rapidly expanding away from us. And when I first heard that, I'm thinking, yeah, so what? But if we press the rewind button, we come back to a point where the universe had a beginning. And atheists will tell you that something on that day came from nothing. Why? There is not an astrophysicist or scientist on the planet that will say the Big Bang is false. Not one. The universe had a beginning. What is the cosmological argument? It is this. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. The universe has a beginning. The universe has a cause. And we know his name. By faith, says Hebrews, we understand that God spoke the world and the universe into existence. I love that because I want everybody in this room to know that Richard Dawkins would have you believe that you are an accident. You are not an accident. Every person in this room was a deliberate thought in the mind of God. Praise his wonderful name. Second one is this, objective morality. World War II, I'll be very brief. World War II. World War II finishes, the, the whole German Nazi regime collapses, they march into Germany, they round up all the head honchos who were responsible for the atrocities of World War II. They were atrocities. They round them up, they put them into court and they find that they've got a problem. Every single one of these guys that they're beginning to put on the stand puts their hand up and says, why am I even in this courtroom? I have done nothing wrong. I have not broken the law. Everything we did was according to German law. Subjective morality. 
In other words, we killed 6 million Jews because it was legal in Germany. Be careful where you go with natural selection. Be careful where you go with your atheistic tendencies. Who really wants to live in a universe without God? Because if you don't have God in this universe, what happened in World War II is just an opinion. If you say it was wrong, it's your opinion. But what they did was they formed what we now call the United Nations. And what the United Nations did was they said, no, 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 no. Your morality and your law is subjective. There is an overarching objective morality which says it doesn't matter what soil your foot is on, genocide is wrong. Killing another human being is wrong. That's objective morality. There is not a person on the planet that denies objective morality. Why? Because everybody points to evil and suffering. There's no God because there's evil and there's suffering. Really? Well, if there's no God, what what makes you think that anything's bad? Well, because we can measure it against this that's good. But how do you know that that's good? Because we have an intrinsic moral code that God has written on each and every one of our hearts. Number three, the design in the universe... I could, I could rattle off facts and figures about the gravitational pull of the earth, all of those sorts of things. And if it's an nth degree either side, then uh, we know that it's, uh, the habitable life on earth isn't possible, all of those things. But here's the greatest design argument. I want to give you the easiest one to find and the greatest uh, reference point for the design. Go and have a look in the mirror. The human body is an amazing and profound machine. Just start there. And start to understand that this could not have come together by random processes. I know your bodies probably look a little bit more profound than mine, but, but at the end of the day, the human body, each living organism possesses something we call irreducible complexity, which is a fancy word for the fact that you can't have a part without the whole. You can't have the human body because if you're missing the smallest valve in your heart, you're dead. You have to have the whole lot at once or nothing at all. It's kind of like, pretend you'd never seen a watch before and you're walking along the beach and your foot stubs something in the sand. You pick it up and here's a a Swiss watch. And you're looking at it and you're beginning to realise that on the face of this watch, everything's moving within patterns. Everything's moving according to regularity. Greatest evidence for God, I think. Sun comes up the same and it has done for millions of years. I'll pause there for the millions of... I'll answer the the questions over coffee. But imagine for a moment you're looking at all that regularity and you're thinking to yourself, I wonder how this all works. So you flip the watch over, you take the back off and you see all these intricate little parts and everything's moving in unison. And who knows, the first question isn't, I wonder how many years of water beating on the shoreline it took to make this watch. Who knows, your first question is, I wonder who made that. How can you possibly look at this universe? How can you possibly look at planet Earth, Sir David Attenborough, and not wonder to yourself, who made that? Who made that? Number four. This is where we come out of neutral. You've got no neutral ground left now. And that is Jesus and the resurrection. There is not a historian on the planet, secular, Christian or not, that denies the existence of Jesus Christ. In fact, there are a series of what we call nominal facts, which are ballpark, home run, 
undeniable truths. First one is Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem, just as it says. Second one, he was baptised by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. Number three, he was crucified by Pontius Pilate. Number four, his tomb is empty. Undeniable. Not a historian. They come up with some preposterous claims as to why the tomb is empty, like the disciples stole the body, like they got the wrong tomb, like Jesus wasn't really dead, but, you know, in all his battered and bruised state, was able to move a two and a half tonne stone on his own and sneak out past the Roman guards. I'm not sure why God is the crazy option anymore. I'm not sure why I sound crazy believing in the person of Jesus Christ when I hear things like the universe came into being from nothing. I want everybody in this room to know that the God that spoke the universe into existence is the same God that wants to know you personally and wants you to know him. That's number five. The greatest evidence for the existence of Jesus Christ, we heard it yesterday, is your own personal testimony. He can be known and experienced today. And Steve shared at the men's breakfast yesterday, we hear testimonies all the time where people put their hand up and we can argue facts and figures until we're black and blue in the face, but nobody can steal your testimony and nobody can steal what Jesus has done in your life. Nobody can rub out the fingerprints of God in your heart. After laying the foundation... Verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God. I want to encourage everybody in this room to seek God. Drop your lists, leave your formulas, and just come to God with an empty heart and say, I want to, I want to know you more. See what God will do. God has never turned anybody away. But I love as Paul goes on, he says that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. (laughs) But he finishes the verse with, yet he's actually not far from each one of us, which is what I like to call the hound of heaven. And it doesn't matter where you are, you, you may have been... You may have been in relationship with Jesus and you may have walked away. You may have gone a million miles from Christ and you don't know the way back. You may think that you're so far away from God because of all the things you've done in your life. I want everybody in this room to know nobody's any more than one step away from God and that is the step where you turn around and realise that he's right there. That's what Paul is saying. You're seeking God, you're you're flailing in the dark, but he's actually not that far from any one of you. Turn around. Turn around. In him we live, move and have our being, says Paul, as even some of our own poets have said, quoting their poets, very smart, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. He's not like your altars. He's not like your images. You can, you can try to beat God into any kind of image you like and he's not like anything that we could imagine. He's nothing like what we could fashion. He's not an image formed by the art and the imagination of man and people are still trying to beat God into some kind of an imagination that they form for themselves. The times of ignorance God overlooked. Ignorance equals possibly 
neutral. Now Paul's saying, the times you guys have sat in neutral, God's overlooking that. Listen to what he goes on to say. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Oh. Because he has fixed a day. Because he has fixed a day on which we and which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. I want everybody in this room to know this morning what Paul is saying in that verse is there is no neutral ground left. Jesus has removed all the neutral ground and there is a day fixed when every person in this room and every person in Queensland and every person in Brisbane will stand before Jesus Christ and give an account. A day has been fixed. Are you ready for that day? As the worship team make their way back, I'd like to finish by asking just a few questions of everybody in this room today. Does today find you in neutral? Do you find yourself in neutral ground, not really moving forward, not really moving backwards? I mean, at least the atheists have got (laughs) enough gall to put the car in reverse, right? And head away from God. And like Athens, possibly, maybe our lives are full of idols. Maybe, maybe our lives are based on many very different things. Maybe we value other things more than we value God. I want to give everybody in this room the opportunity to know that you can taste and see that the Lord is good. In fact, we're recommended in Scripture to taste and see that the Lord is good. This Jesus removes all of our neutral ground. This Jesus leaves us all in a place before him with no grey areas. We're going to continue to worship this morning, but if for any reason you need prayer, then we've got two or three songs left. Then myself or the leadership would love to pray with you as we go through the next three songs. Thank you, worship team. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.